Good evening. Um, I'm Glenn Hover, and uh, as you know, as Justin just said, laboring at the downtown congregation, uh, one of the churches in our network. Before we get started, I, I wanted to, first of all, thank Rudy and Bill for being our hosts uh, and being in their great new building and their great new fellowship hall. Man, it's really wonderful. This is an answer to prayer. Um, and the second thing is, myself and my wife, Meg, who is right there, uh, you can raise your hand, honey. And, yeah. So, Church of the Res and Grace DC will be hosting the trip to Israel this June. Uh, myself, my wife, Meg, and myself, and Dan Clare and his wife from Church of the Res. So if you have interest in that trip of going to Israel with us, and it's uh, something that we're really excited about. Dan has run this trip for uh, a couple years now. He will make a presentation this Sunday at the end of the Grace Downtown service, and there's also information on Downtown's website if you need that. So did the people in the back hear that? Good. So, let me say this before we start. We have um, we have slides up here. I also brought this. There is far more information on this than we can really go through. Um, but I wanted you to have the reference in case you want to do further study, you're further interested in it. But just want to let you know that. We're going to be moving pretty fast through this thing. And I won't be reading every quote. I'll be picking words out. But hopefully, you can take it back and see. For some of you that can't see the screen, basically the slides follow this verbatim. So you ought to be fine. Well, with that in mind, let me pray and we'll get started. Father, I thank you for every person here that's taken the time to come and learn. And we ask that you might be faithful to your promise, Lord, where you say those that hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled. We pray that this would be a productive time, a time where we can sharpen one another. I pray that you would help me uh, to be clear and understand questions well. And I pray that you would give us uh, perseverance to move ahead and work. In Christ's name, amen. Man. So we're starting this week off with a question, can the cannon be trusted? Now by cannon, are we talking about a military uh, device? Are we talking about uh, a detective from the 1970s? Any love there? No, not happy. Okay. Well, anyway, I, that, that was for some of the older folks, but I guess they didn't know. Um, what we're talking about when we say cannon is we're talking about the books of the Bible. But because Jesus and the apostles confirmed and verified the Old Testament books, we're focusing really on the New Testament books. And there's many questions that swirl around with that. Um, questions like, what was the process? Wasn't this thing just a result of a power struggle in the first century? That's why we got those books. Wasn't it just because people sort of randomly put books in there? What about uh, books that were rejected? What about 
Paul's letters that we never found. He said he wrote some other letters. Did we get the right books in the Bible is basically the question that we're asking today. And as we do that, we're, we're also asking, does the Christian religion provide sufficient grounds for thinking we know which books belong there? Okay? That's what I hope to accomplish. Now, I'm using a couple different resources, and I want to tell you right off the bat, uh, and I have them listed there, uh, an article by Richard Gaffin, who really gets the big idea across, and then this book by Michael Kruger called Canon Revisited. I am basically giving you his outline. It is the best book I've found. It's the most comprehensive book I've found. And so I'm borrowing a lot from him as well as other things that I've taken in over the years. So as we think about this question, we actually have to begin with a step back. How do we even approach the question? How do we approach the question? And I would say there's three different ways that we can categorize how we approach the question. The first is those that believe the canon is determined by the community. The canon is determined by the church or a group of Christians. The second one would be that the canon is determined by historical investigation. So we'll look at that. And then thirdly, that the canon itself is self-attesting. So that's the direction I'm taking this in. We're first going to look at this idea the canon is communally determined, and I'm going to mention four different approaches under this first one, okay? Uh, the first one, I would say, is that it's mortally approved. By that meaning, it's merely humanly approved, the canon. That basically what we have are a collection of books that were just decided upon by fallible human beings. And it was really just a creative act of the church to put it together. You have a couple scholars here that would say uh, the canon are all human decisions. That there's no intrinsic quality in the books themselves that make them special. But rather, they just were the ones that people picked. The status of it being canon was the community just decided it would be canon. And so, a couple marks of this thing would be uh, the texts themselves are not divine but rather they derive their authority from the people. And the view that in the early church there was really no orthodoxy or heresy. There were just many Christianities, and what we got, we got in there. Now, there are strengths and weaknesses to this. The strength would be it does affirm that uh, the community is involved, and we'll be talking about that, and that the New Testament just didn't fall out of the sky. It was actually a long complicated historical process. The weakness is this idea that human involvement and divine involvement are mutually exclusive. It has to be one or the other. That's the, the fallacy in it. And rather the view that, uh, instead of the view that the New Testament books when they were written became canon, there's the view that actually, no, that couldn't have been the case. Um, the second view under this communally determined model is what we'll call church approved. And this would be the one reflected in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the definition, the canon is determined by a trifold authority. If you're familiar with the Roman Catholic Church, there are three uh, tiers of authority are scripture, tradition, and the magisterium. That's the popes and the bishops. But the magisterium is actually the last, the, the primary one because it alone has the authority to interpret the other two. And here we get 
mixed messages uh, from the Catholic Church. On one hand, you'll have a Catholic writer say, uh, the Council of Trent uh, recognized the Bible that didn't create. But at the same time, you'll have Catholic theologians that say, no, uh, the essence of Scripture is derived from the essence of the Church. And without the Church, there would be no New Testament. Now, um, so it's basically defining the canon is an act of the church, and it's approved by an infallible magisterium. That's the Catholic view. The strength of that, it acknowledges that the church has a part uh, and divine activity. The weakness is the Roman Catholic Church ends up being the sole and fundamental means by which we infallibly know we got the right books. And in order to have an infallible scripture, you then have to have an infallible God. That's the magisterium. But the church had a canon 1,500 years before the Council of Trent ever showed up. And so we would say, you know, there's a weakness there. This comes from J.I. Packer. The church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity. Newton did not create gravity, but recognized it. And I would say this is confirmed in the scriptures. When you go to the book of Ephesians, it says the church is built upon the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, the writings. It's built upon the writings that God has given. And same with Paul's letters. Uh, the scriptures themselves never give the impression that their authority is derivative of the church. Uh, scholar N.T. Wright says it this way. It's analogous to that of a soldier who receiving orders through the mail concludes that the letter carrier, carrier is his commanding officer. Those who transmit, collect, and distribute the message are not in the same league as those who write it in the first place. And, you know, the critique by the Roman church on Protestants is you guys have this sola scriptura idea, that scripture is the main authority. But they have a um, sola ecclesia principle. And that is that the church alone defines the authority. The third, under the community determined view, is the community approved canon. By that it means that the, the canon becomes authoritative when a particular community embraces it. Not because it's historically true or because the apostles wrote it, but rather it's because it's functioning in the life of a people. Uh, now this was a reaction to what we'll get to next, which was historical criticism. So I would say that's a strength of it. But in this view, the most accurate canon is seen as only later, only after the church has its theological struggle. So they would say the church had to have its theological struggle, and then whatever books really became meaningful to them, that then became the canon. So I hope you're understanding there that again, the community is the thing that's determining the canon. Uh, the, the strength of it, it does critique modern critical approach. It's less prone to elevate the church. There's a theological basis. But the, the, the authority of the canon ends up being dependent upon its reception and verification by a group of people. The content of the canon, as historically true, is secondary to its function in the community. Okay? So what they're concerned about is whatever's functioning in the community as scripture, that's authoritative. And lastly, we get to a variation of this. Uh, and I, I mentioned there too, God's books are authoritative prior to anyone ever using them. Right? I mean, if God wrote the books, he just need people to read them to make them divine. Um, the last one is a variation on this. 
individually approved, and this is more of an existential or neo-orthodox view, uh, that the canon is not so much constituted by a community, but their personal individual's experience with the scripture. Uh, you get this from uh, Karl Barth. The word revelation in the Christian context simply means God's encounter with those to whom God wishes to communicate God's own self-being, promise, and will. So the authority is not found in the scriptures. It's rooted ultimately in what happens between the book and an individual. It's basically an encounter with God. And so as I encounter scripture and it becomes personally meaningful to me, then that is authoritative canon. And in some ways, I would say, uh, you know, there is a sense, the strength is, uh, there is something called the testimony of the Holy Spirit, where God's Spirit testifies in the hearts of believers that, yes, these books are from Him. But the weakness is the authority of books rests on whether they speak to an individual. I would say this might be the closest to modern American belief. And I see it within the church, too, where Christians will reject parts of the Bible that don't speak to them or they don't agree with. In a sense, what you're doing is saying, the canon is what is meaningful and makes sense to me. Okay? Now to sum this up, let me mention a quote from Kruger. He says, some view the canon as somewhat of a historical accident, some view it as the result of the inspired declarations of the church, and others view it as an event that takes place when the spirit works through these books and impacts individuals that all share this in common. When asked how one knows which books are canonical, they all find the answer in the response of the Christian community. That's approach number one. The second approach we're going to spend a little less time on, the canon as historically determined. This means that the authority of the canon rests upon our historical investigation and validation of those books. So uh, when I was in seminary, there was something going on called the Jesus Seminar. Anybody ever heard of that before? Okay, a couple people. It was a group of scholars that got together, and they were critical scholars, and uh, one of them came to my seminary and lectured, and uh, they were a pretty big deal. They made it to Time Magazine, uh, on the cover of Time. And what these scholars did was, they went through the Gospels, and they would read the Gospels, particularly the sayings of Jesus, then they would assign a colored marble to each saying, depending on what they believed was its authenticity. So you get a, you know, a gray marble if they didn't think you really said it, a pink marble, and maybe you said it, a red marble, you really said it. And uh, in the end, I mean, Jesus ends up not saying much other than love each other, and who knows why you get killed for that. But the point is this, that's a visual, really, of this approach. The idea of critical scholars saying, we're gonna go through with historic method and decide which things are true and which are not. The strength of this, is, uh, and by the way, another way you'll hear this is they're looking for a canon within a canon. They're looking for the true core within sort of the husk. The, 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 what goes inside the husk? Yeah, that thing. That, they're looking for that inside the husk. So, um, the strength is uh, they do place emphasis on, emphasis on historical investigation, which is important. The weakness is, whatever criteria that group of scholars erects becomes the authority by which the canon lives or dies, right? So, I mean, if a scholar is committed to the Enlightenment, that's going to be the authority. Or if a particular scholar says, a liberation scholar says, no, 
the only thing that's valid in scripture in those passages that talk about freeing the oppressed. Or perhaps a feminist scholar would say, no, the only legitimate ones that are those that raise up women, the ones that don't, aren't part of canon. And even uh, what we would call, this is anachronistic, but evangelical Christians, Martin Luther fell into this trap. Luther would say uh, that a book had to preach Christ if it was the real deal. So if Luther didn't think a book preached Christ, like the book of James, he would say it was an epistle of straw. It probably shouldn't even be in the camp. So this is that approach, this idea of um, you know, someone's particular view. This quote, individual Christians are not obliged to accept the entire New Testament as canonical. They're free to look in the New Testament for what they themselves regard as authoritative and to select their own canon. Now, there is a version of this, a well-meaning version, good intention version of this by evangelical Christians. Uh, the approach I just talked about tends to deconstruct. It tends to want to use those tools to pull away and say, let's get rid of the, you know, the chaff and get to the wheat. Whereas the evangelical scholar said, no, let's deploy those means to affirm that the entire Bible is canon. The entire Bible is authoritative. And so this would be called evidential biblical criticism. Uh, here's a quote from one of its chief proponents, B.B. Warfield. It is a most assured result of biblical criticism that every one of the 27 books which now constitute our New Testament is assuredly genuine and authentic. So you see the emphasis is on biblical criticism is the thing that makes us know that this is the real deal. And often uh, the connection to the apostles is the main criteria in that investigation. Another one, uh, we determine what books have a place in this canon or divine rule by examination of the evidence. That first two words, right? We determine. Right? It's still this idea of a group of well-meaning people. Uh, and it's, it's the thought that historical evidence will be the infallible way to validate what books we need. The strength of it, of course, emphasis on historical evidence, and there's been a lot of good research done that has helped people. Um, that the apostles are a key to that, another really good thing. Um, that the divine origins of the canon are taken seriously. The weakness is the, in the insistence that the canon must be authenticated solely through assured results of biblical criticism. So to round this up, before we go to the third point, because you know, the third point is always the right point, right? The first two are always not, but the third point is always the right point. Um, what I'm trying to say here is no man-made criteria is sufficient, whether it be whether an apostle wrote it or whether it was received by the community, none of those things in and of themselves can be the way that we validate the canon. Okay? Because in the end, uh, what you have is a human being erecting a system whereby they're going to say, this is. God's canon, God's word. Now, I, I'm going to get to the questions that are buzzing in your head. But who has the authority to tell us what constitutes a divine book? Only God himself. And where would God tell us such a thing? In the scriptures. Now, this gets us to the third point, which is the idea that the canon is self-authenticated. Self God is canon. Um, that God's word testifies to its own authority and authenticity. There was a movie from the 70s called Oh God. 
Anybody see that movie, John Denver was in it? Um, you know, this is a case where my illustrations are really connecting with my group. Listen, I watch movies that are current, but I can't find a movie that makes this point. This is a movie called Oh God, and uh, basically God is played by this uh, George Burns, who was this old, uh, you know, old man who smokes a cigar and walks around. He's a comedian. And when they finally bring him into the last scene, they put him on the stand and they give him the book, Will You Swear to Tell the Truth Ever So Help You God? And he says, So Help Me Me. <laughs> that was actually a brilliant theological move. Who but God can testify to God's own words? You know, when you someone need someone to validate your words, you need an authority beyond yourself. But when you get to God, where are we going to go? Now, and this is reflected in uh, the scriptures, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And then theologians that have understood this, Calvin, Turretin, Herman, ba Herman Bavink, in the churches, in the church fathers and scholastics, scripture rested in itself and was the norm. Now here's the big question, right? The obvious question, ain't this all kind of circular? Ain't this circular? For you to say, God validates the canon, is circular reasoning. And my uh, response to that would be, all philosophical systems are circular. They are. How is a rationalist going to convince you of rationalism? They're going to presume their own rationality, and they're going to use rationalism to convince you. Or let's imagine that um, I am a scientific materialist, you're a Christian, and I want to convince you of my worldview. How am I going to do it? I'm going to use the scientific method. I'm going to basically try to convince you that nothing else exists, but I'm going to deploy the very system I believe in to make my point. So I, I think it really is a canceling out thing when we get into that circular, that circular. But I would make this point, if any system should be circular, it should be this one. Because God alone is at the top. God can only swear by himself. Now, if I stopped right there, you would probably be unsatisfied. Because it sounds like basically just cause. Why do you believe the Bible? Just cause. But we do need to embrace that. And we're going to take other forms of authority. But here's the thing. The canon itself gives us guidelines how to evaluate external data. The canon itself gives us clues for how we might validate. God knows as human beings we need a little bit more than just cause. But where do we go for that just cause? Do we go from ourselves? No, he supplied them in the canon itself. Okay? And so let me read these two quotes because I think they're helpful. Uh, the canon itself provides the necessary direction and guidance about how it is to be authenticated. A self-authenticating canon is not just a canon that claims to have authority, that just cause, nor is it simply a canon that bears internal evidence of authority, but one that guides and determines how that authority is to be established. The canon's going to help us establish and identify the right books. This comes from Richard Gaffin. God is the supreme authority. We must not forget this personal reference or we'll begin to view history as something autonomous and personal process. How can we avoid confessing that God is the author of the Bible as a whole, the architect of the collective entity, 
The only other alternative is that the Bible is a human anthology of divinely inspired writings. And if so, is open in principle to revision and requires verification. But such human anthology view of the canon runs counter to the witness of the scriptures themselves. That's ultimately why we're saying those things ain't going to work. Because the scripture itself says that. We've got to find a different one. And so now, we're going to get into those attributes. And I'm going to get into a few of them. I think we'll do the break at 7.45, so uh, just another 10 or 15 minutes, we'll take a break. So, what attributes do we find in the canon itself that help us to see its God-givenness? Uh, there are a few that are mentioned. One is the marks of divinity. So uh, John Murray says this, If scripture is divine in its origin, character, and authority, it must bear the marks of that. God's word reflects his person. It must. You know, your word reflects your person. And so it only makes sense that if this is God's word, we're going to see God in the book. It's going to have a supernatural uh, and power to it. And I have all these scriptures I'm not going to read. You know, Psalm 119, it brings wisdom, it gives joy, it brings light. The Apostle Paul said, you know, my message didn't come in words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit's power. And then as you look at church history, you find this was the view of the early fathers. Going back to Origen, he said, if anyone ponders over the prophetic sayings, uh, he'll see the readings are not utterances of man, but the language of God. And then this comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is one of the confessions of Presbyterian Church, talking about Scripture. The heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby Scripture doth abundantly evidence itself to be the Word of God. Uh, so if that's the case, why doesn't everybody acknowledge it? Right? If it's such like, you know, this is the Bible and God is all over the pages. Well, the Bible tells us that. Romans 1. Because we, we're sinners. And sin blinds you. Just as we are blind to God and will suppress the knowledge of God away from our lives because we don't want it infringing on us, in the same way, we can be blind to the divine marks of Him in His Word. I've seen this over and over in the lives of people that become Christians. You know, the Bible didn't mean anything to them. They get woken up, God turns on a light, and then it is full of wisdom. And I would say many of us in this room could give testimony as I have followed the Bible in my life. It has beautified my life. It has made me a whole person. It has forgiven me. These would be some of the things that they say. Uh, another one is the Holy Spirit. I mentioned testifies in our hearts. Um, one theologian has said that the testimony of the Spirit related to the Word, one is objective truth, the other is subjective. It's like light to the human eye. Along with this beauty, there's another thing, and that is its doctrinal, redemptive, historical, and covenantal harmony. That's a lot of religious words. Let me try to unpack what that means. One is to say the doctrinal unity of the Bible is another marker of its divine state. And that is, um, let me read this quote um, from Kruger. Although the orthodoxy of any individual book is not sufficient 
to demonstrate its canonicity. The fact that all 27 books share doctrinal harmony with each other, and with the 39 books of the Old Testament, proves to be a compelling argument for the New Testament's divine origins. When one considers the vastness of the scripture, the variety of authors, the diversity and complexity of topics, in different geographical locations, backgrounds, and time periods, combined with the fact that the canon was not assembled by a single individual or group who could have imposed such unity, it becomes all the more noteworthy that there is such remarkable theological harmony throughout these books. I think that's something worth considering. And the Church Fathers as well had this view. I'm not going to read these quotes from Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria, but they basically say that. But there was an illustration in the early church of this. Many times, critics will say that uh, the early church fathers were just sort of non-discriminating, they were gullible, they were just sort of grabbing books, whatever, and we went back and kind of edited it out. Well, that's not the case when you read about the early church fathers. Uh, many of them were liter literary critics. Uh, they were constantly analyzing canonical text and non-canonical text. And on top of that, uh, they were rejecting books, often. There was a, uh, a case with uh, Serapion. He was the Bishop of Antioch, and someone presented him the Gospel of Peter. And he said, we receive both Peter and the other apostles as Christ, but the writings which falsely bear their names we reject. There was also another uh, person in church history who faked a book and put Paul's name on it, and he said he had done it out of love for the Apostle Paul, but he was defrocked. So these guys were discriminating about what the books, which books were hovering around. So doctrinal unity, redemptive historical unity basically means we've got one long story that runs through. You know, the book of Hebrews and the book of Exodus line up together. The book of uh, Revelation and the book of Daniel interpret each other. Jesus in the book of Luke said, all of the scripture testifies to me. And so its unity is another testimony. And lastly, its covenantal structure. Don't have time to go into this, but the covenant, this idea that God makes a lifelong bond with his people, if you want to ask what is one organizing principle that runs all the way through the Bible, it's the covenant. And the fact that you find that both way back in Genesis and way far in the New Testament is another mark, again, we would say, of its divine mark. A second attribute is the corporate reception of the books. The fact that the church recognized and identified them. Okay? So there is a place for that, I said. Uh, first of all, we need to understand that God's corporate people, not individuals, are the whole. Right? It's not whether an individual decides to keep a book. Unlike the Roman Catholic approach, the church, though, is not the sole ground for whether or not we've got the right canon. Rather, the canon imposes itself on the church. The canon imposes itself on the church. Uh, let me read this quote. I think it's helpful. Uh, the origin of the New Testament canon is not the same as its reception by the church. We must avoid confusing the existence of the canon with the recognition. What is constitutive, God's action, and what is reflexive, the church's action. The activity of the church, statements of church fathers, decrees of council, and so forth, concerning the content of the New Testament, does not create 
the content. This is the difference between, in your home, you've got the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer, right? One sets the temperature, one just reflects the temperature. The church does not set the books. It reflects the books. It responds to the books. Um, it, basically, I've got more quotes that sort of make this point. Uh, it, but this last one from Ritterboss is worth mentioning. Uh, Christ will establish and build his church by causing the church to accept just this canon and by means of the assistance and witness of the Holy Spirit to recognize it as his. This does not mean that we should expect to find perfect unity among the church. But it does mean that we should expect to find a corporate or covenantal unity, which is precisely what we do find. It doesn't mean you're not going to have people, you know, I'm going to say this later, I'll say it now. One of the critiques you regularly get from those who are critical is, if these books were God-given, then we would expect there would only be agreement and no diversity. But that's not true. That's a, that's a presumption that's made. God, God moved through normal channels. He moved through human channels. We're going to get into that. Let's do the apostolic uh, origins of the book, and then we're about, we're, we're doing well time here. Uh, you might get an extra 30 seconds uh, because of this. And I do want to leave time for questions. So the third one and the key one is, of course, uh, how do we know these books are from God? It would be the apostolic confirmation and affirmation of them. Jesus himself said, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he's talking to the apostles, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And then in Luke, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. The apostles were deputized by Jesus to speak his word and to write his word. This is what Jesus had planned for this. He raises from the dead in the book of Acts. He spends 40 days with them. That was probably the content of the New Testament. Except for what we get from Paul. And so the church is, while Christ is the chief cornerstone, the scripture tells us the church is the foundation. Or rather, I'm sorry, the apostles. Got that wrong. The apostles and the prophets, New Testament prophets, were the foundation. And, you know, you only lay out a foundation stone once. And this is why we have this understanding that after the apostles died and the last day's speech ended, because according to Hebrews, they were speaking last day's speech, when they died, the canon was closed. And capital A, apostle, was closed. Because that was a unique role. And apostolic witness wasn't just merely testimony. If you read the background of it, it is infallibly authoritative, legally binding deposition, the kind that stands in court. So when Jesus talked about them being witnesses and the apostles were witnessing, they weren't just saying, hey man, I feel this, and you know, I know you feel it too. I, I, I've uh, spent some time talking with Mormons in my life. I've got some family members, but some years back, Megan and I did. And oftentimes, um, and, uh, a Mormon person will tell you, um, read this book and see how it, and ask God if it's true. And when they talk about their testimony, they'll talk about the burning of the bosom. But you see, that's just one part, internal testimony. That's not all you can have. 
You know, the Book of Mormon has to then sit under, is it apostolic? Right? Does it, is it drive with the doctrine of the other books? It does not. So, the point is this. None of these things, in and of themselves, are going to be enough. Let's turn to this image that I have here. I think it's, uh, yeah, I'm, where is it? This thing. Okay? You know, you have the Holy Spirit <coughs> through these attributes of canonicity. Because, you know, we can't just say the beauty and majesty of the book is enough, because what about the book of Leviticus? Right? Some of us would be like, I don't think that book's beautiful at all. I fall asleep every time I read it. You know? Or we can't just say that it's what the church uh, recognized and talked about a lot in its letters, because some books got a little airtime, like small books like Jude. In 1 John, you know, we don't have a lot of, like, people talking about. We have enough, but not a lot. So you can't just have one. These three help us. Now, this raises the question, and this is where I'm going to end before I break. Um, no, actually, no, let me say this. Um, so, when did the canon close? Well, it depends what you're talking about. If you mean, when did all the, the books get sort of codified and identified by the church? Third or fourth century. When was the canon alive and working in the church? Second century. When did the canon become God's word? The moment the ink dropped. So you see, it's better, rather than to talk about dates, to talk about stages of the canon. Because, of course, if God wrote the word, it's canon when he writes it. And as the churches begin to use it, it's canon as it's working in the community. And yeah, it took time for the church, and that's where we're going to head next, to sort of identify and say, no, nah, I don't think so. That, you know, it, it took time. But that, in the end, was the close of the canon. And uh, that's where we'll head after the break. So let's take a break. Okay. Um, the good news is, is uh, because I was talking so fast, we're like ahead. Uh, the bad news is, is maybe, uh, well, the Q&A time hopefully can get at some of your, your questions. Um, so we don't have that much more to do, and then we have plenty of time for Q&A, and then we'll, maybe we'll uh, advance it. Who knows what'll happen. Um, so for those of you that came in at halftime, um, or you feel like, what was all that? Let me just try in uh, very uh, simple form say what we've just talked about. We're gathered here today. <laughs> We're gathered here today uh, asking the question, how do we know we got the right books in the Bible? How do we know the early church got the right books? And I mentioned there's three basic approaches. The first approach is the community will tell you. Maybe it's uh, those that are skeptics and say, yeah, it was a very flawed community and they just made their own decisions and you got whatever they made. Or the church community, the magisterium will tell you. And then the other two are basically whatever books connect with the community or whatever books connect with an individual. So basically over time as the church were using these books, they were like, man, these ones really connect with us. So that is how we ended up with what we got. That's the first approach. 
The second approach is historical investigation. That's going to help us whittle away what shouldn't be there, or it's going to help us validate that everything is there and should be. But what, we, what I was saying is, while they both have merits, and both uh, might be sub-reasons, sub uh, they can't be the reason. Because when you're talking about God and His Word, only God can validate His Word. And yet, in His Word, He gives us ways to recognize the ten. So instead of us going, the Enlightenment will do it for us. You know, or existential connection, that'll do it. No, no, no. Listen, I didn't leave you, early church, or modern church, I didn't leave you just to sort of stumble and fall. Within my word itself, I provided identifiers, a way for you to go, yeah. And we mentioned some of those. It's divine majesty, it's apostolicity, and it's recognition by the community. So, to end it, now I want to talk about the emergence of the canon. Now we're moving into the early church and how they utilized it and what they did. Um, you know, in Colossians, Paul says, when this letter has been read among you, you have it also read in the church of Laodicea. Already, in the apostles' day, it was the habit where people would gather and they would read the letters. And those letters were authoritative. You'll find Justin Martyr saying that basically Christians gathered, I want you to gather your worship and then uh, we will listen to the memoirs of the apostles. That was authoritative. And so uh, God gives the books through his apostles. Their books are recognized and used as scripture by the early Christians. And then the corporate church achieves a consensus over time. Uh, by the middle of the second century, the four Gospels, all of Paul's epistles, the book of Acts, 1 Peter, and 1 John, and maybe a few more, are already widely recognized in the capital C church, early church. Uh, tradition was reading them in worship, and you find plenty of references of them in the early church fathers. For instance, in the Didache, you find the Lord's Prayer mentioned. Polycarp, this is 110, right? This is, this is just years after the uh, Apostle John would have gone. Uh, Papias, Bishop of Heropolis, he sat under John's teaching. In fact, this is a quote from him. The elders, talking about John, used to say, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered. Matthew collected the oracles in the Hebrew language. So these guys that were close enough to actually have known an apostle and be able to say, you know, this is why we got into this idea. It's not just something that the apostle wrote. But rather, the question with apostolicity was, was this something that was authored during the apostles' time and under their oversight? Because we have books like Mark that wasn't written by an apostle, but Peter's oversight was there. Books like Hebrews that the church actually thought Paul wrote, so they adopted it for the wrong reason. But they did the right thing for the wrong reason. You know, God works through that stuff. Uh, Irenaeus quotes James, 1 Peter, John's letters. Over a thousand New Testament passages you find in his writing. Uh, the Muratorian Fragment has 22 of the 27 books listed in it. 
And other books were rejected. For instance, the letter to the Laodiceans, because it was forged. Imagine that. The three major biblical codices each contain all 27 books listed in them, in the New Testament. And you even see, this is an interesting line that I had never thought about until I was studying for this thing. Even, you know, in, in early Rome, in Greco-Roman world, if you read, took out, you know, a scroll and rolled it out, you know, you wouldn't find breathing marks and accents. If you've said it, it just all runs together. But what you found in the Christian scriptures where they had inserted those things because it was being used for public reading. And even the, the uh, invention of the codex, right? The, the main thing that everybody used was a scroll. But the Christians began to adopt a book form for the letters because it just made more sense for what they were doing. And so even those are hinting of canonicity, that they, were, they, they had their eye on a canon. They were wanting to get a group of books, recognize this book. And there were copy centers. Uh, if you go to your local, uh, you know, Kinko's in Rome, or Jerusalem, or Alexandria, they were moving a little bit slower, but they had copy centers. And God's providence is clearly seen. And some of you have probably seen this before, but just by the sheer manuscripts that he left us. Um, you know, if you consider... Other ancient writings, like Tacitus, Suetonius, Herodotus, you know, we end up having small numbers, like, right, 27, 3, that's like all, that's all the manuscripts they have. And the earliest ones are hundreds of years after, 4th century, 9th century even. But the New Testament, you have over 5,700 partial, that's only counting Greek manuscripts, plus another 10,000 in Latin, a million quotations, dating from 100 to 150. Well, you know, let's keep in mind, uh, it's a modern person's expectation to go, but yeah, why didn't they have a medium? Listen, they didn't have email. They didn't have fax, right? You got that, you've got to allow for the time, but in that day, man, things were moving fast because there was great attention and care because the early church knew what they had. And they knew what they needed to protect and preserve. That's why you had copyists. You, you could go to, you know, they, you know, they could identify the middle letter of the Pentateuch. Because that's how precise they were in copying these things. However, the edges of the canon were fuzzy. And, they, and it took time, no doubt. And it didn't fall out of heaven. There was lots of discussion. Um, Usually, the reason was because an apostle didn't write the book, or the book was just like really small. And it seemed strange that it would be uh, scripture. Um, on this idea, you know, of um, why then, if these books were God-given, why wasn't there no disagreement? Why was there no diversity? I mentioned that earlier. Well, one, the Bible itself accounts for false teaching and sin. And one of the main reasons the church began to say we've got to recognize and identify the books that came from the apostles was because false writing was already creeping in. False teaching was already in the church, right? You read that in Paul's letters. And you had all these different things like the Gospel of Peter or the Gospel of Thomas, which I'll mention. 
So is God will to use normal historical channels over different time periods and different geographic locations? That's what we have. But what about these disputed books? What about some of the disputed books? Well, James was attributed to Jesus' brother James. He wasn't an apostle, so there was concern there. But soon after, you find they embraced the book. Clement wrote a commentary on the book of James. Origen cites it. And Eusebius, who we'll get to, said it was, most, it was known to most. Um, the book of Jude, he was also a brother of Jesus. Uh, it only has 602 words in it. And it has a little reference to a book of Enoch. So people are like, wait a second, that's not a biblical book. So that reference makes us nervous. But again, they work through it. The earliest canonical list we have lists the book of Jude. Tertullian, Clement wrote a commentary. Again, Eusebius said it was used publicly with the rest in most churches. Second Peter. People had concern that it had overlap with Jude, but also its literary style seemed different than 1 Peter. But again, you find Clement, Polycarp, Cyprian. In the book of Revelation, John didn't identify himself as the apostle. It just says John, so that made them wonder, is this a different John or John the apostle? But again, over time, uh, it's referred to in Papias, Exegesis, Justin Martyr, Melito of Sardis, Muratorian uh, Mur 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 Canon. So, early on, you find extensive mention of the books that were already in there, but also confirmation of these other books that we have. Um, then when you move forward a little bit, Eusebius, who was you know, a great theologian and historian, he lists all the books that we have. Uh, you know, this is like second, third century, third century. He lists the books that we have, and he puts the books into four categories. Those that were accepted immediately, those that were disputed, like James and those books we mentioned, those that were edifying but not apostolic, like Shepherd of Hermas in the Epistle of Barnabas. So these were books that they actually read in churches, and some churches were reading them because they were edifying, but it'd be sort of like a really, you know, it'd be like one of Tim Keller's books. You know, it'd be like one of C.S. Lewis, a book that they were like, hey, this is really great, uh, that we really like. You know, maybe you've read a book and you're like, man, it was, it, it, God was all over this book. Well, they were edified, but still, Eusebius mentioned that uh, those were not part of the scripture. Now, I want to heighten too, because sometimes, you know, in this day and age, um, there's a lot of excitement when someone finds an ancient manuscript. And I get that. But there's also this idea, because what I said about the view of the canon, that people really fight to try to say, no, this was supposed to be in it, and there were power struggles. But let me mention the Gospel of Thomas that got a lot of... It has 114 sayings that are cryptic. They all start like saying, Jesus said. Jesus said. And the last one says, for every woman who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. There's no account of the birth and the resurrection of Jesus. And in the ancient manuscripts, you never find Thomas listed among any of the other Gospels. And when you read it, it just doesn't feel like a gospel. You know, it, it's just kind of these aphorisms and sayings. And so the early church was like, eh, it's not a gospel. And then you got the gospel of Peter, which is a little crazy, where you have a, a giant Jesus who exits the tomb with his head reaching beyond the heavens and a cross that begins to speak. And when Jesus hangs on the cross feeling no pain, he says, my power, my power, why have you forsaken me? The early church was like, eh, 
That doesn't agree with the Gospels. That's not going to be one. And then Athanasius wrote a festal letter in 367. And in that, all the books of the New Testament, in agreement with Eusebius, Jerome, Augustine, Simmons of Hippo and Carthage, are mentioned. So, that being said, the testimony of the early church is very strong. When anybody that's been through modern university or watched a PBS documentary, and I like PBS, okay, what you're going to hear is basically there were lots of mistakes, people weren't, you know, and there's always this modern arrogance that ancient people weren't sharp or, and, you know, discriminating, but we are. We know better because we're going back with our flawed things, looking through the text and saying we see it. These guys were doing that. And the testimony of the early church is strong about the books that we had in the hand. Now I want to say one word about the Apocrypha before uh, we wrap up for questions. Uh, the word Apocrypha means those having been, those having been hid away, hidden away. And basically these are the books that the Catholic Church have in the Old Testament that are not in the Protestant Bible. Why aren't they in the Protestant Bible? Number one, the Hebrew canon established by the first century didn't have it. They showed up in a Greek translation of the Hebrew called the Septuagint. And Jerome, who wrote the translator of the Latin Vulgate, he retained them, but he also had prefaces that said these are not the true parts of the Bible. And on top of that, the church fathers, Melito, Origen, Eusebius, Athanasius, and Cyril of Jerusalem did not accept them as canonical. So that's why Protestants don't. Okay? Doesn't mean they're not edifying. Doesn't mean they can't tell us something about history. It just means they weren't recognized as canonical. So, that's basically the information that I'm bringing for us to interact with. Um, it's only 818. Um, we're not going to keep you here till 9. This is high school. But we'll talk a little bit. We have time for questions. I'll do my best to answer ones. There's also able minds in the room. If I don't, I'll punt to them. Uh, but Harry.
the testimony of the early church in connection with the apostles. And there's a couple places this skeptic we're talking about, I'd have to move them. One, I'd have to move them to say, could you embrace that Jesus deputized the apostles to do that? I, you know, I've got to take them to the, to the book itself. So that's where you get into the circularity. But I could bring in the ancient church and say, listen, 5,700 manuscripts, that's not even lot. That's a lot of manuscripts to do the science and textual criticism. You know, which is basically you take all the manuscripts together, you see what's common, you see what's not. We've got a ton of evidence on which to do that. I'd want to meet him there, but obviously I don't think that's going to persuade him. Yes. Um, my name is Kristen, and I wanted to know about Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so, boom, 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 boom. 
Yeah, the Protestant view is basically um, because, you've got to go back to this, Jesus, the reason we don't spend a lot of time in the Old Testament is because Jesus himself verified the law and the prophets, and he mentions that. And then also the apostles quote extensively from the Old Testament books. Uh, at this point, uh, we would say that um, uh, based on that and the fact that Hebrew canon was established, and those weren't in there, they didn't show up until the Greek translation uh, later, and then you have the early church fathers who were close to it, so yeah, you know, they weren't. That is like Protestants, I think we've got enough evidence there to say they should be. Yes. Um, okay. Can you speak a Gee, 
what chance do we have if we're relying on the early church as one of the school legs in the school? We don't have them around anymore to even validate, oh, that's Paul's Corinthian letter. So, you know, I, yes, I think there are other scripture letters that the Lord did not see. John said, Jesus did many other things I couldn't put in this book. But the Lord saw fit to give us what we need. So it is, you know, one thing about this, folks, and, you know, and if you're someone that's not a Christian here, I want to say, I understand, I can't argue. You know, faith is something where God, like, prevails and comes. And uh, I would say the same thing happens with the scriptures. But we're not mindless about it. You know, we do our research. We have good reason to say, if you're going to trust those historical documents, well, we have good reason to trust these historical because what God was like. Yes? I have two questions. Please. Um, the first one is um, about the 5,000 manuscripts. Yes. Um, a Christian I was speaking with recently was talking, I was asking, what is the best word in the Bible today? Yes. And they were saying, well, I think what you said tonight makes a lot of sense that God is sovereign over everything, yeah. um, and that gives me a lot of assurance. Yeah. Um, this Christian that I was talking to was talking about, I think maybe more of the like less doubtful of God's sovereignty over mm -hmm. him, perhaps, but was talking about um, how all of these manuscripts were had a very different wording, and when different versions of the Bible were written, um, like lots of different versions came out because, and then you can see a footnote and there's like 15 other possible meanings. Um, so, um, I feel trusting in, as you said, in like providence. Um, additionally, is there, are there um, certain translations that you have seen, like, went through this like three-tier process more truthfully, or? Well, you know, uh, we have to understand our translations, right, are working from the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic. So not all of them do that. Some of them are translating from just another translation. And so, you know, in some ways, there are kind of like two different questions here. One is, were the, were the original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts that we got out of those manuscripts, were they coherent enough for us to be able to translate an authentic word? And I would say without a doubt. You know, you know, and, you know, the majority, I don't want to for a percentage, whether it's 95, 96, you know, a high percentage, there is not the real question about it. You know, people can sit there and go, no, this makes sense. Yeah, we have questions about certain portions, and when we do, good Bible translations put them in there, like the book of Mark, where it says this probably didn't belong there. You know. And so, and we wait on more light. Maybe we do get more light. But our confidence that our Hebrew and Greek manuscripts are sufficient for us to get a solid rendering of the scripture, I think, is without question. The translations after that, they go case by case. Are the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts consistent with each other? They are. I would say that, you know, this is the science of textual criticism. I'm not saying that there are differences, but the whole idea is that God left us so many. 
that we can sit down and go, this agrees, this agrees, this agrees, that doesn't agree, uh, we're not sure about this one, and none of them affect any major doctrine in the scripture. So, you know, I, I would say that we just have as much confidence as anybody would in the historical book. And I would say more because we believe God can get his work done. May I ask for a second? Yes, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, which is just for pure delight. Um, yeah. How did the how did the Apostle Paul become an apostle? Okay. Paul says that he is one abnormally born. So to be an apostle, you have to be with Jesus from the beginning. Right? And Paul would say that his gospel did not come from another source, it came from Christ. So Paul uh, testified that Jesus appeared to him. Converted him. And then Jesus, he also makes reference to Jesus meeting him and his word, teaching being given by revelation. I think a part of this, so that's that's how Paul became an apostle. When he first enters, though, the other apostles a little bit nervous because he was killing them, right? But after that point, they embrace him fully in their midst. So you have the other Holy Spirit filled apostles going, we believe this testimony. Paul, Paul spends a good bit of time defending his apostolicity because he's one abnormally born. Yes. Uh, so I agree with the method, kind of historical scientific method where you can approach someone and say, you know, objectively stepping back, we apply uh, kind of the science of examining historical documents and the books that we have in the canon mm -hmm. uh, stand the roof, right? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you just approach someone who says, yes, I believe in uh, the divine providence of scriptures, so why wasn't just one person chosen to write this thing? And specifically, I got into a lot of um, discussions with Muslims who would say, you know, Allah, yeah, he has yeah. one sole source, the person who wrote uh, many, not all, of the things that we hold as the divine word of God, right? Yeah. So just going from the reverse, Direction, not trying to maybe appease the uh, reluctance of people who don't believe in a God, people who genuinely do believe in a God, say, why wasn't there some other type of providence to give us this? Yeah. It's true that you know, the Book of Mormon explained that we were given gold tablets. Muhammad had a series of visions. Uh, although Muslims also you know, affirm the Old Testament, they just say it's been corrupted by Christians. So at that point, I would say their argument is going to fall a little bit because they are embracing those scriptures. But the bottom line, I would say, is because God's revelation is unfolding. And I would say that's actually a stronger argument because here you have a variety of people over a variety of times and circumstances writing a word that agrees, opposed to one person saying, I got a vision from God, and this is what So it's the nature, yes, of unfolding revelation that it could not have been written by one person. And I also think the various voices give us more. Uh, the Gospels are like you know, a four-part harmony. Mm -hmm. uh, get, Matthew brings us uh, a view through the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, and, and so I, I think that, um, I don't see that as so much a liability, but if I were talking to a Muslim friend, I would probably say, well, you know, yeah, I'm sorry, probably not being fair to this side of the V-hole, one second possible. Go ahead, Eric. I have some trouble understanding the logic for trying to handle logic itself in the K model. Yeah. Because at one point, you know, 
seem like we are. At one point, there is this idea of some human decides whether the sort of scripture is self-authenticating or not. And but that allows that approach to be open to weakness in one of the um, further methods. And corporate reception, just by itself, seems like another method to have um, in one of the early developments. Same with epistle. Take word in the sense of words word. Yeah, it's not just felicity. Right, so that's one thing you know about Yeah. I know that I, I think the Catholic Church kind of agrees that about this combination of corporate reception in the early church and the apostles. <coughs> so the, well, to me, it seems like a self authenticating model seems to take on all the other models and then trying to yeah. address each other's weakness by mm -hmm. I mean, just taking all the strength of all three of them, but still perhaps compared to the weakness of all three of them. Is that yeah. true? What's the criticism against it? Yeah, I, I would say um, what's the criticism against the self authenticating model? Or against it? Let me take a shot at your question. Um, <laughs> I think. Um, um, you are right that, you know, I refer to those as attributes. We're, we're, you're right that there is something about consensus and apostolicity and I mentioned divine coherency, all that, all that stuff is, you know, why, why isn't that the primary thing? Or does that make it vulnerable? Because we, I would say no, because we're trying to put them in their proper place. Those other systems are elevating them as the primary authority. Say this is how we're going to judge the canon. We're saying no. Actually, the canon has to tell us how it's going to be authentic because it's God's word. And so, in that case, we find Jesus. So you know we have Jesus deputizing apostles, and then we have the early church recognizing which books the apostles. Recognized, and there in the canon comes together. So, I'm going to follow up by an answer. So I would acknowledge you're right. Those three things are in there. We're not saying that they don't have a place. We're just saying how high of a priority are they going to be? You know, they can't even just from a logical standpoint. We cannot decide which books God gives. I would say look, the language is not decision. The church was recognizing it in the way that Jesus wanted us to recognize. The way God instructed us to say, this is how you will know. You know, the apostles' miracles. Why did the apostles do miracles? Was it so they could impress people and go, look what I can do? No. It's so when people saw a miracle, they would go, I've seen that somewhere before. That's Jesus. It was to authenticate your words. Right. Well, back it up. <laughs> For us moving in, I'll be like, you're all my territory. I said, earlier you mentioned, uh, I want to talk about the public views. Yes. And uh, you mentioned that it went in wrong reason, right thing, right? Right for 
So I wanted to just kind of look at that as an example of perhaps, yeah. first of all, um, if, if they thought Peter, I mean Paul, they thought Paul wrote the book, yeah. how did they then come to think, realize he did not write it? And did they do that before they canonized it, or they kind of found it, they, they, they were like, well, we might have been wrong about the author, but we're going to it anyway. Yeah. And then does that open up other possibilities? I don't have a lot of details about the process. Um, the word I should put is initially it was received that way. Yeah, so initially uh, there were some, not all, some that said, hey, Paul wrote this. But over time, they judged, no, Paul didn't write it, but they still judged it was apostolic. And so that's why I said you find many, several of uh, church fathers uh, quoting it the same way it belongs in the canon. So I'd say initially people got it wrong. You know, initially some folks got it wrong, not everyone. So that's part of the messianism. But you know, God, God works through it. Yes. So um, going to that messiness, I guess part of what I think is it's tough for me is to understand like you know, we could say like 90% of it is black and white or something like that, but we have some of this messiness around the edges. Um, trying to understand like why God chose a method that was going to result in some messiness. Um, and I guess maybe one thing that comes to mind is um, in the Old Testament, I think there's this story of sort of like rediscovering some scrolls that had been like lost for a while. But I don't know. I mean, Obviously, there's like mysteries and things we can't understand about God, but do you have any thoughts about why he would use that kind of method? Yeah, um, I have some thoughts. I don't know if they're, you know, taken for what they're worth. Um, and the same way he uses a jawbone of an ass preacher to preach everything. You haven't talked about me, not those guys. <laughs> Jars of clay. For some reason, God delights. I think some of it is the dignity of, he affords us. Uh, I, I often say, you know, God using human writers of scripture wasn't plan B. That's what he willed to have. And I would say he also willed to use his church to recognize what they did. It was his goodwill and pleasure. You know, and God was confident that it was going to get done. Just like, you know, can, can you ultimately thwart God's will in your life? I hope you don't believe the Lord accomplishes his goal. He's the Lord. And we could say, you know, can God communicate without messing it up? Can man afford that? I would say, I can't believe that. Now on the scroll thing, context matters there because that, that story was Israel had fallen so into sin they totally forgot about God's word. It wasn't a revelation. It was like, there are no Bibles around. Them. 